I'm a bear for context. I, uh, I, I, I believe that sometimes we shortchange our ability to, to, to see solid conclusions from a given passage because sometimes, and I speak mostly for me because my experience is my experience, we have, we have decontextualized the passage. We have taken a passage and lifted it up out of its moorings and considered just the immediate words. My, my, my favorite example of how dangerous that can be, um, the, the long, long speeches made by Job's friends. Some of those speeches are multiple chapters. And so if you pick out a couple of paragraphs from a Bildad speech and you say, let me, let me cross stitch that and put it on the wall because it sounds poetic to me. And so you, you take a couple of paragraphs of Bildad. Here's, here's what's true. God's word has accurately recorded what Bildad said. What Bildad said is scripture. However, all of the speeches of all of the friends late in the book are labeled by the living God as words without knowledge. God shows up and says, who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? So God takes those speeches and says they are terrific examples of bad understanding. These guys have said a lot of untrue things. Now, your Bible accurately records what they said. But if you don't keep reading, you might miss that God shows up and says that what they said is foolish. Now, that's a that's a low hanging fruit, easy example on the importance of, of viewing context a bit more broadly than, than sometimes we want to. What we have tonight is a particular prayer of Hezekiah, um, one, of the, one of the great kings of the southern kingdom during the divided monarchy. Now, I'm going to show some restraint. Um, briefly, I'm going to remind you of what the divided monarchy period is. And then we're going we're gonna to dive in a bit of background on Hezekiah. And then we're going to get to this prayer. But I want you to see this prayer. I, I, I sort of want to lay out a whole bunch of black felt on the table before I scatter the diamonds so that the diamonds show up and reflect right. I want you to see that Hezekiah, while greatly effective, was also deeply, deeply human. I couldn't just tell you that, but the word of God, I think, will do a better job fleshing that out. So the prayer that we'll be looking at is somewhere off in 2 Kings 19. So, of course, take your Bible and turn to 2 Kings 16. <laughs> 16. 16. Second, yeah, I'm going to do a multi-chapter running start. Um, one of the, well, we'll start, we'll start uh, specifically, we'll probably start in about verse 10. Here's, here's um, for, for, for before I even get to my Roman 1, and my Roman 1 is still context, but one of the first things I want us to see about Hezekiah is Hezekiah's daddy was awful. Hezekiah's daddy was a king named Ahaz. And Ahaz was a godless train wreck. One, one simple thing to remember is, and you, and you remember, the, the, the United Monarchy period begins with Saul. 
people of God said, we want a king like the pagan nations around us have. And God, not as a blessing, but as a judgment, sent them a king like the pagan nations around them had. I believe a pagan himself, uh, he had some close brushes with God, but I don't believe Saul ever knew God. That point is debatable. It's not anything I would go to the mats over, but uh, I, don't, I don't sniff out anything that, that I would, would deem regeneration in the life of King Saul. I think they, they asked for something and God in his graciousness judged them and gave them what they asked for, which suggests a, a quick sidebar of application. I bet by now, everybody in the room's a grown up. I bet by now you've prayed for things and, and God has not given you what you prayed for and you have come to be glad. You ever had God say no and in the moment you went, well, wait a minute. But then a little bit of perspective and a little bit of time, you look back over your shoulder and say, thank you, Jesus, that I didn't get what I asked for. Well, Saul, they got what they asked for. And then the reign of Saul gives way to the reign of David. The reign of David gives way to the reign of Solomon. But, but Solomon, the, 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 the children of Solomon fomented a, a civil war, essentially, and a fissure of the nation of Israel into two nations. So the united monarchy period only has three kings, Saul, David, Solomon. After Solomon, the northern kingdom is its own political entity. The southern kingdom is its own political entity. The southern kingdom will sometimes be called Judah because the backbone of that kingdom was the tribe of Judah. Uh, and then the northern kingdom was a mishmash of, of most of the other tribes. The northern kingdom never had a godly king. There were some individual decisions made by kings that were not all that heinous, but the northern kingdom never had a king that is on balance commendable. Southern kingdom, the kings were a mixed bag. And Hezekiah's daddy, Ahaz, was one of the worst. A few things he did. Listen to this. He, he, he messed with the temple. He went on a trip. Well, let me read it to you. This is 2 Kings 16, beginning in verse 10. When King Ahaz went to Damascus, to meet Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. Let me stop there for a minute. <laughs> a little background of the background of the background. You do remember that the, the, the temple in Jerusalem uh, was very, very precise in its design, right? Okay, you gotta, you gotta know that or this paragraph is not, if you don't know that, you won't cringe hard enough at this paragraph. So remember that the, the temple in Jerusalem is, is, is a, is a God-directed design. Well, King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Blazer, king of Assyria, and he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And king Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. When the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. And then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar that he had redesigned. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest saying, on the great altar burn the morning burnt offering 
and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering and throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the, of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. And Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them. He took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on the stone pedestal. And, he, and, he, and, he, and the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king, he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Paraphrased, paraphrased conclusion, he took a trip to Damascus. Like the layout of their temple to whatever pagan god their temple was devoted to and came back to Jerusalem and rearranged the temple of the living God in Jerusalem to match the idolatrous temple of King Tiglath-Pileser of the Assyrians. Willy-nilly. Rearranging the temple of the living God was kind of a grade A infraction. He also overtly worshipped idols. If you go same chapter, go back up to verse 4. Um, uh, he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Remember, the high places were specific centers of idolatrous worship that were scattered around the land. Never should have been there, but there they were. And he, um, he worshiped there. And uh, in verse 3, we learn, same chapter, back up yet another verse, he sacrificed one of his own sons. Um, but he walked in the way of the kings of he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, that is, like the northern kings. <clears throat> Sometimes, again, the northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So Hezekiah has that for a dad. Um, concept of intergenerational sin is deliberately set aside by a chapter in Ezekiel. I believe it's 18. We are not to perceive inevitable guilt or inevitable pattern from our ancestors. That being said, there's no doubt that your, your parentage whether you grew up with your biological parents or adoptive parents or foster parents or some mosaic of all of that, the manner in which you were led by the most influential adults in your life during the years you were young imprints you. It just does. The statistics about the alcoholic children of alcoholics, the abusive children of abusers, those statistics are readily available and, and it's, it's, not uncommon for bad patterns to repeat themselves. In a culture that loves to make excuses and distance itself from any sort of personal accountability, it's also the case that, that the, uh, the probabilities associated with inheriting and replicating bad patterns from your parents are a readily available excuse. I'm this way because my daddy was this way. I'm this way because of the way I was raised. And again, I've already said there, there, there can be a profound imprint from, quote unquote, the way you were raised. 
for good and for ill. But Hezekiah, I, I, I don't know if we could sit here and theorize a more despicable catalog of infractions. Ahaz rearranged the temple. I mean, in David's reign, somebody placed a hand on a piece of the temple equipment, the Ark of the Covenant, and got, got dead immediately for it. And God's emotional response to monkeying with the temple hasn't changed. He's, his wrath may present itself differently. And then idolatrous worship from the king of Judah, killing his child. It's, I, don't know that we could, I don't know that we could in our imaginations craft a, a more heinous moral resume. And this is the home in which Hezekiah grew up. But Hezekiah, who, whose sib would have been the child that was sacrificed, grew up to love the Lord. Hezekiah grew up to love the Lord. Um, some of you, you know, every Christian is a first generation Christian. You inherit lostness. You do not inherit salvation. But sometimes as a term of convenience, we use first generation Christian to describe somebody who came to faith in Christ, but whose parents weren't believers. Um, there, are better, there are better ways to say that, um, to say, well, I'm, I'm a first generation Christian, can, can fail to remember that we all are. Nobody is, nobody is born into faith with Christ. However, some of us are born into families that as an expression of his, of his particular grace in that particular set of circumstances, God visibly stacks the deck. Every, every person who's born again is born again because the living God stacks the deck. When you're omnipotent, you do not play fair. Omnipotence doesn't know how to play fair. He always plays justly, but he doesn't play fair. And you're not saved because God is fair. You're saved because God stacked the deck. And if you've been saved long enough and you've looked back with enough biblical insight, you can see how he did it. Maybe at least some pieces. This conversation led to this conversation, led to this meeting, led to this exposure, led to. And I uh, turned from my sin and followed Jesus kind of thing. But part of his Stacking the deck in my own case, and I've shared this repeatedly. I've got a mom and dad who love Jesus. Mama's, daddy will turn 91 in August. Mama's about to turn 88, and I've still got access to them. They're not as nimble as they once were physically, but they're still very much intact cognitively, and uh, I, am, I am blessed by that. And I am blessed that they loved each other. They got married in 1955. Um, they loved each other and they loved Jesus a long time before they ever heard of me. And they never gave me anything to rebel against. I didn't, I didn't deal with a lot of adolescent rebellion because there just was nothing to rebel against. They were, they were even-handed and gracious. You knew where the lines were and the penalties for crossing them were noteworthy. Um, but I never... You know, my, my mom and dad were so controlling. I suppose, I suppose they were. I, I, you know, anyway. But some of y'all in a room this size, some of y'all could tell stories 
of abusive parents. Now, I'm not suggesting you should, but you could. Some of you could tell stories of, of absent parents, either emotionally absent or literally absent. Some of you of abandoning parents who just were there one day and then they weren't. And then a cross-section of adults in the spring of 22, with this many adults in the room, we've got examples of all of that. Some of you have parents that just didn't love Jesus. And you were not raised in an environment during your childhood and adolescence where the love of Jesus was the atmosphere in the place where you were putting your head down at night. And I know that. And I, I, I invite you to consider Hezekiah. Because unless you have a parent that killed one of your siblings, and you might, I, you might, but I, 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 I deem it unlikely. You didn't grow up with what Hezekiah grew up with in terms of daddy issues. And yet, Roman numeral one, typical of me, I'm 20 minutes in and I'm through my introduction, but I'm still dealing with context. Roman numeral one, I want you to see Hezekiah's courageous consistency. Hezekiah comes to the throne. I'm going to show some restraint and not, and not read you the whole chapter, but I'm going to point you to it. Uh, letter A, B, C, D under his consistency. Letter A, he restored the temple. There's a whole chapter. It's in 2 Chronicles. We'll be mostly in 2 Kings tonight, but the parallel in 2 Chronicles. One of the first things he did when he came to the throne, 2 Chronicles chapter 29 is an entire chapter devoted to King Hezekiah putting the temple back right from the, from the mess and and chaos that his father had introduced into the temple. Hezekiah said, no, God has told us how the temple is to be. We're going to put it back. Um, letter B, back into 2 Kings, he, he removed the idols. 2 Kings 18.4. Skip over to chapter 18. In the third year of Hosea, I'll start in verse 1, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, that is, his ancestor, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Now, that's an interesting thing. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. Uh, it was called Nehushtan, which basically means the bronze serpent. I want to chase that rabbit for a minute. You remember the story of the bronze serpent? Jesus cites the story in his conversation with Nicodemus um, as Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness. Look and live, Right. God sends a plague of, of serpents into the, into the camp of Israel. Everybody's getting bitten by these snakes and dying. If you want to live, just look. Just look. It's a, it's, a, it's a marvelous and emphatic object lesson on the gracious character of salvation. You want to live? Look. And Jesus made it clear that it was an anticipatory metaphor for the cross of Christ and salvation by grace in his conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. <sighs> but they kept it around. I've said it, I think, a couple of times before. Our faith is a faith of facts, not a faith of artifacts. 
we will turn anything into an idol. It's why I'm glad that we don't know the actual location of the tomb of Jesus. We don't need it. It's why the little Anglican priest mumbling at me at the garden tomb a few years back in Jerusalem made the statement that if we, if we did know we had the right one, we would behave like our friends across town. And he was referring to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where our Roman Catholic friends think they have the right cave and they've created this gaudy, gold-plated, tacky, garage sale-looking, ornate, ridiculous idol over it. We don't need pieces of the true cross. We don't need the left toenail of Saint somebody. We don't need artifacts. The shroud. Yeah, oh, the shroud, a medieval hoax. The shroud is an excellent, while I'm chasing rabbits, I love Wednesday night. <laughs> the gospels say that Jesus' head covering was a separate piece than what his body was wrapped in. So much for the Shroud of Turin. You either believe the word of God or you believe something else. And the word of God says that Jesus was wrapped in something around his body below the neck and something around his head. And the Shroud of Turin is one piece. We're done. Because we are a faith of facts and those facts derive from scripture, not a, fake, a faith of crusader slash medieval souvenirs. I enjoy traveling. Uh, I've, I've been to the Holy Land. I've, I've, I've been to, to Greece and Turkey to retrace some of the Paul mission stuff. Uh, Carrie and I are going back next spring to uh, Greece and Turkey. It's a good trip. And I do like seeing those places. I feel like I've got color photographs and books and Bibles, and it's kind of fun to step into those color photographs and poke around a bit. That's fun. I always cringe when somebody says, well, that just made the Bible come alive. No, no, no. The Bible was alive a long time before anybody ever heard of you. It'll be alive a long time after nobody on earth knows you anymore. But if you mean it made it more vivid for me as I got a chance to step inside those pictures I've looked at all my life and kind of turn around and say, oh, so this is what this is like. I'm with you. I enjoy that. But we don't need the, the riot in if, uh, if Acts 19 doesn't need me to stand on the stage in the Ephesian theater and go, "Who? this is where it happened. I like standing on the stage in the Ephesian theater saying, "Who? this is where it happened. But that theater and that event is known to be true on the basis of the text of the book of Acts. I don't need souvenir. Well, the bronze serpent had become an idol. How about that? We can turn anything into an idol. The bronze serpent that served such an effective purpose that Jesus himself cited the account of the bronze serpent. It's a good thing that it was created and it's a good thing that it was used to illustrate the power of gracious salvation. It was a good thing. And then as people will do, they didn't chunk it when it's time for usefulness had passed. They turned it into an idol. And thankfully, Hezekiah saw that and disposed of it. And he was right to do so. So he restored the temple and he removed the idols. He revered God's word. Verses five, six, right where we are. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. 
so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. He didn't have the whole Bible yet, but the Bible that he had, he clung to. He was a word of God leader. He restored the temple. He removed the idols. He revered God's word and he received God's blessings. Verses seven and eight. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Now, remember, in his father's day, his father redesigned the temple to the to the whimsical fancies of the king of Assyria. And, and by the way, also paid enormous tribute to the king of Assyria. And here Hezekiah says, I don't think we're supposed to be doing that. So he stopped. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So he's receiving God's blessings. And so far, it's kind of, it's kind of vacation Bible school predictable. You know what I mean? A good king arose and he did all the things that a good and godly king is supposed to do. And it all worked out nice and neat. For a moment. For a moment. Is that how life works in a fallen world? Do you, do you, do you get that kind of... Now, I'm not talking about for the moment. I'm talking about if we if we if we pause the story there and said, and King Hezekiah lived happily ever after to the end of his days. Would we would we be reflecting the way we know life works? It's like Gideon. I love teaching the book of Judges. I, I think we joked about this when we taught the book of Judges. And if anybody's in here, in here is a Gideon, more power to you. I love that organization. I love what they achieve. I'm all for it. But I think the day they named that organization, they sat around the table and somebody had read the first half of Gideon's story and not the back half. Because Gideon was like a, a coward who became a hero, who became a jerk. Um, a, a jerk who loved God and whom God loved. But the, who's, who is the hero of the Old Testament? Jesus, Jesus, be careful heroizing. Even godly King Hezekiah, better than any came before, better than any who came after. Now the roof starts to cave in. Verse nine through 12, the Northern kingdom collapses. It's a quick synopsis here. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, still, in, I'm still in 18. That was verse 9. Six, no, now I'm in 18. 18, eight, eight, 18 9. Yeah, I'm looking at it. I'm, my bifocals are all over the place, but I'm right this time I checked. Eight, 18, 9. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, the king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria, besieged it, and at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of King of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and on the Habor 
the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. So the northern kingdom collapses, and the invasion of the south comes. And in the 14th year, verse 13, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, these are successive kings of Assyria, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So having smashed his way through the northern kingdom, he lays siege with a degree of success to the southern kingdom. Right after we've heard what a marvelous reformer Hezekiah was, right after we've heard of the, of the blessings that were on his life, now Hezekiah's roof begins to cave in. The Assyrians are at this moment the, the reigning West Asian Middle Eastern superpower. They gobble up the northern kingdom and start to gnaw on the southern kingdom. And so, Roman 2. I promise you we're going to get to his prayer. I'm just still working on context. Sorry, Mark. Roman 2, his cowardly compromise. Hezekiah blows it for a moment. He panics. Roman numeral 1, his panic, or actually letter A under Roman numeral 2, if you're an outliner. Letter A, his panic, verse 14. <clears throat> and Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Each talent's about 75 pounds. So a boatload of precious metal paid in tribute. So letter A, panic. Letter B, poverty. Poverty, verses 15 and 16. Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. He had just restored the temple to its former glory, according to 2 Chronicles 29. And now he's going in and stripping out all the precious metal to attempt to appease the king of Assyria. So panic and poverty. Then he becomes the victim of propaganda in verses 17 through 35. I'm going to read it. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's, it's worth looking at. And the king of Assyria sent the, the Tartan, the Rabseris, and the Rabshekah with a great army. Those are, those are officers in the Assyrian court. Um, with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So the kings of Assyria were met by the king, by the emissaries of the king of Assyria were met by emissaries from the king of Judah. 
And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt. That is, there must have been some old alliance. That broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man that leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? I love it when the pagan world tries to do theology. <laughs> Saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses, and if you're able on your part to set riders on them, how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. God told me to do this. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah and Shebna and Joah, said to the Rabshakeh, please, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Can you please put your propaganda in a language that the people can't understand? <laughs> kind of a, it's a reason, it, it's an ask that makes sense from their perspective, but it's a cowardly ask. But the Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Yeah. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. For he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine, each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, <coughs> a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his hand? His land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim, Hena, and Iva? Have you delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? 
It's a reasonable question. <coughs> Note the offer. Note the offer. We've made this point before. It's an important, important, important point. Sometimes when we, when we speak of, of, of conflict with evil, and even spiritual warfare, If you, and I suspect you won't be, but if you are awakened at two o'clock tomorrow morning from your sound sleep by a nine foot tall winged demon robed in fire and breathing curses, who told you to get up out of your bed and bow before him and worship him, I rather suspect what you would do is start praying immediately. Jesus, um, this would be a real good time for you to show up. <laughs> but that's not, that's not how spiritual warfare works. And over and over again, you see it in Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look, guys, maybe I just didn't explain it well enough. So let me go over it again. In a minute, we're going to crank up the band. It's a good band. And that statue over there that my guys have worked really, really hard on, it's a great statue. You can't deny that. So what I need you to do when you hear the great music and see the great statue, what I need you to do is take a knee. Everybody else is going to take a knee. Nobody's going to mind that you take a knee. It's really the reasonable way for you to behave. It's the right thing to do. It just makes sense. So I'm going to need you to do that. And I, and I hope I've been clear. I know I've been reasonable. And this is what I need from you. His appeal was not weird and angry and over the top until they defied him one more time, and then it was stoke the furnace. When uh, Peter and John got in trouble in Acts 3 for healing the lame man in the temple, and they met with the scribes and Pharisees, who were livid. But the scribes and Pharisees said, you know, we, we get that you're excited about Jesus. But here's what we need from you. I mean, after all, we're, we're kind of in charge at the temple right now, you know. We, we're going to need you. We're going we're to let you go. We're going to let you go. We are going to need you to commit to us that you'll just st stay, stay quiet on this Jesus stuff. Tone the Jesus stuff down a bit and we're going to be fine. This doesn't have to get personal between you and us. Just, and of course, Peter and John, you know, we ought to obey God rather than men. And then their heads exploded. Satan is the angel of light. And spiritual warfare is reasonable. Satan's appeals to you will be reasonable. They will make sense. You know, here's what I need you to do. They will involve critical compromises. Lines that you know better than to cross. 
but it'll be packaged oh so reasonably, even popularly. I mean, let's face it. Jerusalem, well, it's not that pretty a place. It sits up in a, in a mountain valley. The weather is, the, the air is stagnant. It doesn't get great breezes. Much prettier over on the coast. You know, the Roman, the Roman governors in the time of the, the gospel, they didn't have their Roman palaces in Jerusalem. Their palaces were over on the coast at Caesarea. Much prettier. So look, just walk away from Jerusalem. I'll, I'll, I'll put you in a place kind of like Israel. We'll treat you well. Just come on with me. And for heaven's sake, that oddball king of yours who's gone around busting up stuff. I mean, surely you're not going to let him delude you into thinking that some dusty historical God that somebody somewhere says still cares is more real in this moment than us and our army. I'm going to need you to be reasonable. It's a good argument. It's a good argument. And if we sit here comfortable in our, in our 21st century church and we hold the account at an at a arm's length, like it's a, it's a series of VBS posters, and we say, I just know the people of God are going to do better. I just know they are. You're not, letting, you're not letting the story ripen enough in your head for you to understand what's going on here. It's a good offer. <clears throat> well, it resulted in letter E, I mean, pardon me, letter D, paralysis. Verse 30. Um, six, but the people were silent and answered him not a word for the king's command was don't answer him. That led to prayer. Let me read on about this powerlessness. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household and Shebna, the secretary and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. And as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amaz. And said, they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there's no strength to bring them forth. Perhaps you've heard it. I pray you've never said it. That everything rises and falls on leadership. Leadership matters. I'll give you that. But if at this point everything rises and falls on Hezekiah, and his strength and courage and commitment and character were sunk. Hezekiah is gassed. He's got nothing in this moment. His leadership 
is collapsed. Everything rises or falls on Jesus. Again, leaders matter. I, I accept that. And the, the charge of that to lead well, I accept that too. But I praise God that it is, it is false to say that everything rises and falls on human leadership. That, that statement is not true. At least not transcendently true. There may be moments that it plays out as though it's true. But don't you ever believe that the will of God is going to have ups and downs based on how effective human leaders are. Hezekiah cannot thwart what God has for Jerusalem. If, if, it, if it's on him, the story would go, therefore, the three emissaries went back to Sennacherib and said, the people are cowering, it's wide open, let's go get it. It led to finally prayerlessness. Verse 4. King Hezekiah is still speaking. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that's left. It, it may be that God is responsive. It may be that God still cares. Maybe. In that moment, I want to I reach into the frame and grab Hezekiah. Not because I'm better than he is, but because somebody needs to. <laughs> and ask him, Hezekiah, do you remember who you are? Do you remember who your people are? You are the people of the parting of the Red Sea. You are the people of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. You are the people of the collapse of the walls of Jericho. You are the people of the conquest of the, of the seven nations that once dwelt in this land. That's, 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 that's the people over whom you are king and you are their king. Hezekiah, do you remember who your God is? And again, if the situation depends in this moment on the king's courage or consistency or commitment, we're sunk. It is a good thing, child of God, for you to be deeply committed to your Savior. It is a good thing for the followers of Jesus to follow Jesus passionately. But it is also a good thing that your eternity is not based in your commitment to Him. Your eternity is based in His commitment to you. Hang on to Him with everything you've got. I, I taught... I raised, I raised two sons and I taught them both to swim at a fairly young age. And I, wasn't, I did not subscribe to the theory that you take them to the deep end and throw them in and see how they do. Um, I was a little bit more methodical than that. But there does come a time when you've taught them the fundamentals of a, of a scissor kick 
and the fundamentals of, of very beginning, maybe even a dog paddle, but ultimately an overhead, uh, like a freestyle stroke. There does come that moment when you take your child out to the pool and in order to, in order to, hope, in order to be with them at the water level about here, that's over their head. If dad's as tall as I am. All right, son. I'm going to walk along with you, but you're going to swim to the edge over there. You're going to remember what I taught you about kicking, paddling and breathing. You're going to remember to get your mouth and nose up out of the water before you try to inhale because the water won't be good for that, but the air will be and the air is right here. And you're going to make it, you're going to make it to the edge. Don't let go of me, daddy. I have to. You'll never swim if I don't let go. And in that moment, I know that my forearms are about three inches under them. And all I have to do is this, and they are up and out of the water. But I also know if I'm going to see them achieve what I have designed for them to achieve in that moment, they're going to have to swim for the edge without my arms consciously upholding them. I'm right there. But they're going to have to feel like they're swimming on their own. That's a, that's a pretty good picture of, of some moments in your life where the living God will say, I need you to face this. This is what my plan is for you. And, and it might not be pleasant and you might even feel like you're facing it alone. But I told you in my word, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And I am right here. I don't know, but I get a sense here that Hezekiah's kind of lost his grip on that. <clears throat> However, Roman 3, the living God's conquering commitment. The prophet Isaiah is a contemporary of Hezekiah. And the first thing we see in letter A, Roman numeral 3, God's conquering commitment, letter A, an assurance comes. Verses 5 through 7, same chapter now, we're in chapter 19. Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Therefore, I'll put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land that I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Letter B, the threat is repeated, short form this time, verses um, 10 through 13. Skip a couple of verses. They're just uh, the messengers come and go to the king of Assyria, and he sends another message. Um, the messenger said to Hezekiah, came again to Hezekiah and said, or saying, verse 10, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. Now, before he's, they were talking to the people and saying, don't trust King Hezekiah. Here they're talking to King Hezekiah. He's, he sent a, he sends, a, sends a note, a written letter to King Hezekiah saying, stop trusting in God. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? 
have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations, he makes the same argument, that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvium, the king of Hena, the king of Eva? Don't, don't, Hezekiah, don't you think your God is trustworthy? Letter C, Hezekiah's prayer. At 725, we finally arrive at my assigned passage. But I wanted you to, I wanted you to see the story thus far. I wanted you to see that, that, that Hezekiah is running on fumes. Hezekiah does not come striding boldly into this moment and spread Sennacherib's letter before the Lord. Hezekiah is spent. Hezekiah is emotionally reamed out. Hezekiah doesn't know what else to do. So Hezekiah received the letter, verse 14, from the hand of the messengers and read it. And the words here are pretty sterile. I admit that I'm, 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 I'm creating the stage blocking for this. But I think I'm being fair to the account thus far to say Hezekiah is not, well, we'll deal with this. Hezekiah is, oh, I don't know what to do. I got to the end of my rope and I tied a knot and I hung on for as long as I could and now my rope broke. And God, I don't know what to do with this. He has got a bunch of soldiers encamped around my city. So he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. I just love that. It's one of my very favorite moments in the whole Old Testament. This desperate, weak, tired, depressed, wrung out, worn out leader saying, God, can you deal with this? I got nothing. And he prayed. And he prayed. I don't know this to be true. But I think it is. That desperate prayers are some of his favorites. Prayers that come from the place where we're at the end of ourselves. Prayers where we have gotten past the perfunctory and the platitudinous. The prayers of a broken heart. The prayers of a desperate situation. The prayers when we have nowhere else to go and no one else worth talking to. <clears throat> His purity. O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. His providence. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. His preeminence. You have made heaven and earth. See what he's doing? He's praying the attributes of God. He's praying back to God truth he knows about God because he has not forgotten the word of God that we know previously he loved and clung to. 
verse 16, his proximity. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Verse 17 and 18, his power. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, men's hands wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. They were destroyed. I, I, I begin to see little sparks in the kindling here of Hezekiah. Maybe, maybe, maybe this encounter here, maybe this praying is beginning to reawaken in him an awareness of the God whom he is addressing. God, they've been wiping out idolatrous nations left and right. God, I know that where they have come now is not an idolatrous nation. That the phony gods of the Assyrians have done pretty well against the phony gods of everybody else, but they've come now to the holy city of the real God. And I think I, think I remember that. I think that's supposed to matter. Verse 19, his purpose. So now, O Lord, save us please from his hand. That is the only six words in this whole six verse prayer. That is the only six words of direct petition. We are permitted and encouraged to bring direct petition. Let our request be made known to God. Save us, Lord, from his hand. Why? Why? What do you mean, why? We want to get back to our regular life. We want to get back to our comfortable existence. We don't want to have to worry about him. That's not the why of this prayer. Save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth. He prays God's purpose that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Don't ever believe that the Old Testament God is only interested in reaching the nation of Israel. The God of the New Testament is the God of the nations. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the nations. Well, I've had times in my life where I've prayed, and I mean weeping. I've had times in my life where um, in, in, in Kentucky, our house backed up to a big empty field. And there were about three occasions that I can recall that, that in, the, in, the, in the very dark part of the night, I went out to my back, my, my, my back fence was a three or four strand barbed wire fence that I could stretch enough to crawl through if I got halfway between the fence posts. And I went out into that field with a flashlight because there were horses. And I just yelled out to God. Anybody who'd been close enough to her, hear me would have wanted me committed. I'm so glad that's happening to you and not me, but I'm sorry it's happening to you. That's a very me-ish thing to have happen. No problem, my sister, none at all. And I yelled at God, I've shaken my fist at the sky. I have, I, have, I have told him that he's not doing things in a way that makes sense. 
And he has loved me through that anger. And there have been times when calmly and methodically I've laid out for him the course of action that makes perfect sense. In times of, of relative peace, Lord, I see that the first five dominoes have fallen nice and neat. I'm assuming it's your will that dominoes six through ten will fall. Lord, go ahead and push those over too. I'll watch and try to avoid taking too much credit. And none of the rest of the dominoes fell at all and the whole thing went sideways. He's told me no lots and lots of times, but can I let you in on something? And I don't want you to go health and wealth and prosperity gospel crazy. I don't think you would. Sometimes he says yes. And I don't mean audible voices or direct revelation. I just mean sometimes you pray for a thing, even a thing that has kind of a long shot feel. Lord, it would be great if you did this this way. Lord, if you did this this way, people would know it's you. And that would be cool. And he does. And he does. He chooses to get glory for himself by doing the very thing I most wish he would do and then some. Well, this is such a moment. That night. Well, verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria. I have heard. Now, if second kings came with a soundtrack. At that moment, something happens to the music. And if you're king Sennacherib, you don't want to hear it. He always hears. He's omniscient. But when he takes the trouble to send word through the prophet, prayer heard. Sennacherib's toast. Sennacherib's plan just failed. Sennacherib is like a chicken with his head cut off. He's still going to run around in circles for a moment, but he's doomed. Plays out. There's a, there's a marvelous recitation here that I will, I will skip through because i got to get to verses uh, 32 through 37. <clears throat> Therefore, thus says the Lord, Isaiah is still speaking. Therefore, says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there. He's not going to attack it with infantry. He's not going to attack it with artillery. He's not even going to lay siege to it. He will not even come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. Not only is he not coming in, he's not even going to surround it. This is not happening. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Verse 35, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. I love the King James. It says, and when they awoke in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Two different days, but I just love the way the King James makes that wording so funny. 
They looked out over the wall in the morning and the 185,000 people were dead. Now, the text does say it's the angel of the Lord. So I suspect it's a visitation from God, the son. But I did a little math. Suppose it was an angel. Suppose it was it was a literal angel that did that. Just as a little for some of you who, who are, are Bible trivia people who like stuff. A Roman a Roman legion was somewhere between four and six thousand soldiers. So let's split the difference and say five. In the garden, Matthew 26, I think, verse 53, Jesus, in response to Peter, who's going to have a dagger fight with the uh, with the arresting uh, Jewish temple security force that comes to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter says, put the put the letter opener away, Peter. Do you not know that I could request of my father 12 legions of angels? So if each legion is 5,000, then, then, then 12 legions is 70,000, right? 60,000, pardon me, 60,000. One angel takes out 185,000 in a night. 60,000 angels would have had killing capacity exceeding the population of the earth today. 12 legions of angels ticked off would have been quite a fireworks display and nobody would, nobody would be in heaven. You don't want to deal with focused omnipotence pitched against you. Again, God is not the God of the fair fight. Praise God, he's not the God of the fair fight. All right. God showed up magnificently. Hezekiah runs home and dies soon after. I mean, pardon me, Sennacherib. Sennacherib does run home and dies soon after. Okay, takeaways, it's 20 till. I didn't deal much time with the prayer, but here's what I want you to see, at least as these takeaways for the prayer. Pray, pray back to God what you know about him. Pray back to God. Remember, to glorify a thing is to have, see a thing revealed as it is. So when you give glory, to you, you glorify God in your prayer when you pray back to God what you know to be true about him. Does you good to both hear it and say it. And, and blesses him. You know, Lord, we know when I pray for someone who's sick. I hope you do, too. Lord, I know you are the great physician. I haven't forgotten that. And the terrible body ravaging illness of this person for whom I am praying does not diminish the fact that you are the great physician. The great pain of the person for which I'm praying does not diminish the fact that you are the God of all comfort. <clears throat> the great opposition that this person is facing does not diminish the fact that you are the God of armies. Pray the attributes of God. <clears throat> Pray your desires. No point in being coy about it. Lord, save us from his hand. There's no ambiguity in what I'm at. You know what? I think, I think when, when we go through a season as Christians that we're frustrated that God is not moving in the way we wish he would. When I have counseled somebody who's dealing with, God just doesn't seem to be moving and active in my, I just don't seem to be able to trace his hand. Biblical counseling 101 in that, in that scenario is to say, look, if you've never done it before, and it doesn't have to be anything formal, doesn't have to be anything highly structured, start writing down, grab a legal pad for heaven's sakes, and start writing down specific requests you make of God. Start recording them. 
Because if you're telling me it just doesn't seem like God is moving, I'm not sensing. Well, what 10 things have you prayed for in the last six months? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. We're not keeping score. God can handle you keeping score. And you will you will be amazed at how often his answers are affirmative. And you will be amazed at how often when his answer is not affirmative, you come fairly quickly to understand what he was up to. God, you didn't give me what I asked for, but whew, thank you. But if you're not journaling or scratching, at least scratching down some notes. We all know how our memories work or better don't work, right? So so ask and remember what you've asked for. And by the way, note that he wasn't asking for just him. There's nothing really selfish about his prayer. Save us. And then finally, pray his purposes. Pray for his glory. He's going to get it. Pray that he will do good as he sees it for his people, because he's going to. Join him. Three or four times as we've gone through this section of the Gospel of John we're going through. And a couple of times still ahead of us. Jesus is going to say things like, and you do know that whatever you pray for will be. But the principle that Jesus is underscoring is not see me as a vending machine that will respond to your wish list. The principle that Jesus is espousing is come to my will and pray there. Know my heart. I will, I will be glorified before the nations. Pray for that. So pray God's purposes. Pray your submission to his will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think somebody else told us to pray that way, didn't he? So the prayer of Hezekiah, a desperate man's prayer, a spent man's prayer, a man who doesn't even know what to do with himself prayer. It just says, God, I am not up for this. But do you see what they said about you? If you want to show them who you are, that would be cool that the nations would praise you. Go do that, please, Lord. And he did. So, the prayer of King Hezekiah, 2 Kings 19.